0: Can I please have your attention? Daniel Jiggins! <laughs> Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by The Dispatch. Dispatch Media, and all that other stuff you expect me to normally say. Um, Doing things a little different right now. It is 6.30 p.m. on Friday night. It's been a long, I don't know, choose your increment of time. It's been a long one. Day, week, month, hour, year. Um, I'm here alone with the dogs. And uh, the time I had allotted to do the ruminant G-File today, or uh, what do you call it? Uh, remnant today um, was taken up by the fact that I had to get a new. So I got a new iPhone, and I completely forgot that it takes a while to transfer all the stuff. So it went into transfer information from my old iPhone for about an hour and a half. You know, it takes time to move all those dog pictures, and um, and so I couldn't really do the um, the audio stuff then and. Then I had to do a webinar thing for AEI with Ramesh Panuru and Jane Koston from uh, Vox. And then I had to walk the dogs and make them the dinner. But um, I wanted to get this out there into the world. Um, I don't know when it'll come out. But uh, actually, interestingly enough, you have a better sense of when it'll come out than I do. Because it'll show up on your phones or whatever, whenever it does. I keep meaning to start this podcast... Um, by doing my Michael Barbaro voice, um, I've been listening to the New York Times podcast, The Daily, which I read only every now and then, and there's something about his whispering that drives me freaking crazy. Um, I don't know, I mean, I, I think I've mentioned this on here once before, but um. You know, I only listen to it every like fourth or fifth episode or something like that because um, a lot of the times either I know what I think I need to know about the subject or I'm not interested in the subject or I know what I'm going to hear from uh, the times on it because I've read the story that it's based on or whatever. But sometimes, you know, it's, it's, it's a useful dive and um, I cannot stand his sta- his dramatic stage whisper thing. I mean, I think there's something smart about it that maybe there is this tendency um, to lean in, to hear someone when they're whispering. You know, I I think that's a theatrical thing and it drags your attention to it. But I just find it really unbelievably annoying. And then in his interviewing style, he'll do this thing. And look, I am by no means a great interviewer by my lights. I'm certainly not a great monologuer by my lights. and all these things. So I'm not casting stones and and whatnot. People are free to criticize the way I do this stuff, and they do it all the time. Just look at my email sometime. But he also has this thing where the person he's interviewing, which is almost invariably a New York Times reporter, um, whenever they offer some fact, sometimes surprising, often not, he does this, uh, mm, uh, sound, these groan things that drive me nuts. And it's not, it's not sexual, but it's, it sounds like, I mean, not to be too crude, but you know, we're already past that with the potted meat episode. It sounds like he's on in a bathroom stall and he's trying to whisper just to the person in the next stall. And when they tell him the answers to the questions that he wants, every now and then they get punctuated by these, you know, inappropriate groans. Um, anyway, it's, it's just driving me, Kind of nuts. Uh, so anyway, I and oh, by the way, it's sick As I said, it's six thirty something on Friday. Uh, that sound you hear is the last of the Jamesons' Black Barrel. Uh, Jamesons is an Irish whiskey. It's um, as anybody who watches The Wire or knows anything about Ireland, even though it's not really true anymore. Uh, Jamesons is the Catholic of the two main, uh, um, you know easy drinking whiskeys, because there are a lot of whiskeys in Ireland. But, you know, it's it's Jameson's and Bushmills are kind of the Coke and Pepsi of, of whiskeys. I'm definitely a Jameson's man. Um, and if you watch The Wire, you know, there's that episode where McNulty goes to a fancy party and he orders some Jameson's and they say, you don't have any. How about uh, Bushmills? And he goes, Ugh, that's prod whiskey, um, which is what my wife says literally um, every time someone tries to offer a tour instead of jameson's um, but anyway recently jameson's which really should be a sponsor of the Remnant. i mean don't get me wrong um, i love our current sponsors but if you want if you want a pseudo intellectual demi jew wonk pundit to get really passionate about a product you know jameson's is one of those products but um and so if somebody out there is a jameson's you know uh, regional advertiser Um, you know, get in touch. But anyway, Jameson's come out with a a whole line of sort of clever variations on Jameson's. And uh, one of the only ones that we really like or can tell the difference from normal Jameson's in a meaningful way is um, Black Barrel. Really don't like the cold brew, which feels like um, some alcoholic has just simply put normal Jameson's in their Starbucks cold brew to pass it off. Um, but the black barrel is actually pretty good. And I'm drinking it, you know, I never drink before TV. I never drink before public speaking, except for like things like the NR Cruise or a, you know, a, a dispatch live event where it's sort of supposed to be happy hour. But here I am. Um, so I really, I had kind of a, yeah, a, a, a dilemma. I was going to say crisis, it's not a crisis about what to write about for the G-File today. And I had a whole bunch of um, ideas for, like, the lesser little things. You know, the G-Files usually are not always a one-topic thing. It's usually, like, at least one big topic and one small topic and maybe one sort of related topic and all that kind of stuff. And I keep getting asked about where I stand on the burn-it-down debate. Um, you know, the sort of Lincoln Project versus Republican voters against Trump versus the David French position versus, you know, all that stuff. And um, as I suggested on the Dispatch podcast this week, I've been trying to—there's something about the whole debate I really just don't like because it it basically puts me in a position of— um, Being a a a, a political activist in ways that I've been condemning and criticizing conservative writers and intellectuals for the last few years for for doing, and um, and it just feels personally hypocritical to criticize large numbers of conservative pundits, radio hosts, TV hosts, you know, writers, whatever, for. letting their partisanship take precedence over everything else that they believe to sort of join in a similar project just from the other angle. And so, but anyway, I, and I write about that, but I, I also just felt like I, I I had to sort of address it at least uh, partly as an analytical matter. I won't get deep in the weeds and all of it, but basically my position is whether the Lincoln project project makes uh, is is right on some moral or ideological position, it's sort of prudentially and tactically kind of silly because it won't work. And, um, you know, the, the idea that somehow Steve Schmidt and John Weaver and Rick Wilson, who I have a warm spot in my heart for, and same thing with George Conway, um, but the idea that somehow they're going to, uh, with the, you know, funding from a bunch of liberal democratic donors somehow transform the Republican party into something that they want to be part of. And that will bring along millions of Republican voters. It's just kind of ridiculous. Um, it's not going to work. And, um, and if it's not going to work, then I, I kind of feel like this is, I mean, it's, again, this is maybe a little hypocritical of me on this one too, because I love debating all sorts of things like, you know, the post liberalism stuff. And I don't think that you know, the post-liberal Catholic integralist crowd has any mu- has much of a chance of any success either, but I like debating them. I guess the difference there, now that I think about it, is that that's a truly philosophical and ideological argument, even if they think they're part of the beginning of some grand political movement. the the Basically, what they're really trying to do is redefine what it means to be a conservative, and that's a debate that I feel like I should be part of. The reason why I don't really like The um this debate of burn it down versus don't burn it down thing is it's really not at all about what it means to be a conservative. And uh I mean some of the people involved in it think it does, but I think they're you know the technical term for that is wrong. Um you can be a straight Republican voter in 2020 and be a conservative, and you can be a straight Democratic voter in 2020 and be a conservative. Um, and you might, and your reasons for voting that way might be stupid, they might be wrong, they might be very thoughtful, it doesn't really matter to me very much. Um, what I don't want to, and so one of the things I kind of like to sort of bristle at is this idea that this is a particularly important debate when A, for the most part, it doesn't really bear on what it means to be a conservative or what conservatism means, and B, in the realm of sort of a, just sort of objective political, you know, punditry and, and analysis, I don't think it has much future. I mean, I just don't think it's going to work. And this sort of raises, you know, this is a point I make in the G-file, and I'm going to get off this in a second because I want to talk about the things that I wanted to write about but didn't get around to. Um, I think it's James Burnham who said, you know, Problems without solutions aren't problems. I I remember the last time, I didn't look it up this time, the last time I tried to get the exact quote, it turns out lots of people have said this and lots of people have attributed it to other people, so whatever. I think Burnham said it, you know, whether he was the first to say it or not, you know, go figure out for yourself. Um, Whiskey, you'll never let me down. So, uh, you know, the analogy (laughs) strained, I will grant you, I use in um, uh, the G-file is that, you know, I'm trying to make the point that that if there is no solution to what you perceive as a problem, then it's not really a problem. But if you don't understand that, you can waste an enormous amount of time and energy, particularly in politics. I don't think it's entirely true in, in other parts of life, particularly science and innovation. The You know, one of the things that drives innovation is this idea that, quote-unquote, problems of the human condition are surmountable. Um, You know, man was not meant to fly. I think that's the, uh, you know, that was the the prevailing wisdom for a very, very long time. Uh, And then the Wright brothers said, to hell with that. And uh, we figured out how to fly. Uh, There are all sorts of things, you know, on the technology side that, we see nature as a problem, and I don't mean nature, in the touchy-feely, look at Bambi, he, she's so cute. Bambi is a girl. Maybe Bambi's a boy. I don't know. Um, very effeminate boy. Um, but I, I just mean the, the normal physical constraints of the universe as we know it. Um, perceiving them as problems or challenges that can be overcome is a great source of in- innovation. Um, the problem is, is the politics doesn't really work the same way. Politics takes much more time. It requires building consensus. Um, This is why often, uh, you know, uh, businessmen and engineers and scientists make for bad politicians because they don't have the actual skills required to get things accomplished in politics. Um, And this was one of the great misunderstandings of the progressive era, which was, you know, back when social engineer was a term that was not pejorative. It was like this is the wave of the future was this idea that the people who are really good at building canals and dams and all that kind of stuff, they could solve physical problems. So let's give them a shot at solving political problems. And the skill sets just really don't carry over very much. Um, But anyway, so in politics, people who think that you can solve things, um, uh, you know, that, that, that problems that exist, like, I don't know, human nature um, can be solved through politics. They often waste a lot of time and energy, and in certain totalitarian cases, kill people. And um, it's a misdirection of resources. Um, and the analogy I use in the G file is like, say, I, you know, me and Steve are out in a boat far from shore without a phone, and he comes down with a case of appendicitis. Um, that's a real problem. The best solution. Um, the obvious solution is to, for me to cut out his appendix and um, sew him back up. I don't know how to do that, and my rusty Swiss Army knife is not the best tool for doing that. So that's really not a solution. Um, and so you have to look for the solutions that are in the realm of the possible. And that means figuring out, if at all possible, getting back to shore in time to save his life and all that kind of stuff, or cutting him up into bait, whatever. Um and uh, the Lincoln Project is a waste of—having this burn-it-down debate is, a, in some ways, a waste of time because you could round up all of the various species and subspecies of Trump critics, never-Trumpers, anti-Trumpers, Trump skeptics, all of us. You could take the entire phylum, and, and you can take all the resources that the Lincoln Project has and the Bulwark has and the Republican voters against Trump have, and you're really not going to move very many um, voters in the aggregate. You're certainly not going to. And moreover, the real problem, or one of the real problems is, the only politicians that you have any chance of really sort of purging are the least Trumpy ones in the Republican Party. And you actually would have a very good shot of creating a rump party uh, that is even Trumpier than the Republican Party is now. So I just... I want to stay out of it, but also I just I I in part because I think it's fruitless, but more importantly because I I, I really bristle at this idea of being part of a political campaign, or a um, you know uh, as an activist. I, I just other people can pull it off; they can pull some can pull it off well. They can switch their hats and all the rest. I I don't want to tell people how to vote. I want to talk about ideas. I want to talk about arguments. Um, but there's you know. It's not a hard and fast rule. It's a prudential question and all the rest. Anyway, I'm rambling about all that. I want to get back to this thing about things without solutions aren't really problems. Um, I increasingly see people tweeting and saying um, what I think is a profoundly stupid thing. uh, Cancel rent, right? And, um, you know, cancel rent... um, and also, yeah, there was some congresswoman who wrote, who tweeted, cancel rent, cancel mortgages, cancel student debt. Um, even though I think cancel student debt is a bad idea, and the left is really showing, a big, the people who push it the hardest really are showing their true colors about what demographic the, they really represent. Uh, most, as I understand it, most significant student debt is, you know, for grad school. And um, um, and even if it's not, uh, you know, this is basically an effort to subsidize, uh, you know, upper middle class or at least you know middle class families um, in ways that you know don't really jibe with the idea that they're all about taking care of the most needy and. and and taking care of the poor, you know, paying off student debt, which is a real problem for some people. I have lots of friends who have, you know, who've had real struggles paying off their student debt. Um, but it is not, um, but it is, it is, it is a problem that is disproportionately applies to, you know, people of some means, means comparatively speaking, given that, you know, most people don't actually go to or finish college in the first place. Anyway. Um, But cancel student debt at least has... There's some arguments there for it. I disagree with them. But cancel rent um, and cancel mortgages, I think is a really sort of interesting thing to think through how that would work. And um, I bring it up for a couple of reasons. First of all, rent is... the existence of rent, I'm not talking about your ability to pay your rent or pay your mortgage. That's a problem, right? That has a solution, paying it, figuring out how to pay it. But the existence of rent and mortgages really isn't a problem, politically speaking, in the sense that there is no solution for it. Um, if you actually think there is a, play, there's a way to get from point A to point B, where point A is where we are and point B is the United States of America, where mortgages and rent don't exist, then, you know, you might as well be talking about, you know, getting from point A, which is right now, and point B, uh, which is a world where eating pizza makes you skinnier, right? It's just not a thing, it's just not possible. And um, and the people who say it either don't know that, or, which makes them kind of stupid, um, Or they do know that and it makes them incredibly cynical. And this is something, you know, one of my great peeves about both Trump and Bernie Sanders and politics in general, going back to Barack Obama's first campaign, um, there's a real serious danger to social peace and to the society when politicians go around and promise that they can do incredibly revolutionary things really easily. Because if you tell people that they can have their heart's desires fulfilled and that it's really easy to do, we know how to do it, it's not a big problem, we can give universal health care and lower the cost and spend less on health care and improve the quality and all these things, and it's really easy if you just elect me, um, then you get into the situation where once elected and it proves out, as Donald Trump said, nobody knew how difficult health care reform was, Um and they can't deliver it, the natural way that politics works is that the people who failed, um, they look for scapegoats. And invariably, it's some pernicious or sinister force, uh, disproportionately often in some quarters historically Jews, but, you know, bankers, globalists, whatever, and they're blamed for stopping what is an incredibly easy thing to do that has no cost and would benefit everybody. And that breeds a really ugly form of politics, because in part, it's a conspiracy theory and total crap. Um, And in part, it it breeds this sense that the people thwarting us are the real enemies and must be stopped. You know, Donald Trump would be a super successful president if it weren't for the deep state or Anthony Fauci or something. Um, That sort of thinking is profoundly dangerous. And it makes your Understanding of politics no longer about po- finding policy solutions or policy improvements, but instead you think the way you improve the society is by by getting rid of certain people, certain kinds of people, and um, that's a huge problem. But uh, the other point about the the sort of getting rid of rent—I mean, first of all, I've talked about it a million times. All of you know the eye pencil or at least if you've listened to me enough, you've heard me talk about the iPencil essay, how nobody knows how to make a pencil. Um, and I sort of put it in the context, particularly in my really underrated book, uh, *Tyranny Clichés, um, of how uh, capitalism is actually remarkably cooperative. And that we actually, this is, this is how we have, uh, first of all, it's how we solve the problem of dealing with strangers but it's also how we all work together. Capitalism is in fact um, a better word for that stupid phrase. You know that stupid phrase, government is the one thing that we all do together, is just a word for the one thing that we all do together. That's actually just factually not true. It doesn't really scan as an objective observation about anything. Um, Capitalism comes a hell of a lot closer because it is the thing that we all do together. It is the way that we work cooperatively and peacefully um, towards self-improvement and, and towards social productivity. Um, this is not to say it works perfectly. This is not to say that all criticisms of it are wrong, but we are all at one point of entry or another, a part of the market. We all make contributions to it. We all purchase things from it. Um, Um, and in any way that you can think of, if you think serious people should say government is the word we use for the thing, for just the things we do together, then, any metric that you think that applies to correctly to government, it applies more so to capitalism. And so, you know, let's say that for the sake of argument, with the stroke of a pen, we actually cancel rent. Well, first of all, the people who own the buildings will stop collecting rent. That's the whole point of canceling rent. And in the process, they will stop taking care of the building, right? Right. Um, And you can say the government should force them to take care of the building, but um, as you just think that through, that's not going to work. You can't force people to spend money they don't have anymore because they're not collecting rent to maintain buildings they are not allowed to collect rent from. So in the process, they stop collecting rent, they abandon the buildings, they no longer hire the plumbers, the electricians, the supers, the doormen, the janitors, whoever it is who work for the buildings— they lose all their jobs. Um, And then the businesses that they frequent, they all lose revenue. They may not all go out of business, but pretty quickly they probably would if everybody's rent were canceled. Um, uh, And so you can just sort of, you can extrapolate this out further and further and further, and you can see how canceling rent actually reduces the ability of people to interact peaceably profitably, productively, with one another. Um, And it would, of course, also lead Since you know, I I don't have the numbers at my fingertips or um, anything close to it, but I presume that, you know, a big chunk of the buildings that charge rent to tenants um, have mortgages. And so, you know, forget canceling mortgages, just canceling the rent. You're talking about canceling payments to those banks, um, which are then going to have ripple effects throughout the economy as well. And you can just play this game, you know, as far and as wide as you like, and it sort of gives you a sense of how when you say, you know, capitalism is evil or wrong, and if you just cancel these things and allow people to have them for free, you're actually cutting the, the connective tissue between all sorts of people who are working productively together to, to um, you know, improve the economy and, and improve people's lives. Uh, you know, the rent, you know, yeah, there's profit in there, but the rent also covers things like keeping the gas and the lights on and all of these kinds and all that kind of stuff. And, um, anyway, so that was one of the things I kind of wanted to write about and maybe I will at some point. And I I give you full disclosure now, I may in writing return to some of these things. Some people get mad when I talk about something and then I write about it or when I write about something and then I talk about it. Um, I'm spread pretty thin these days. Um, and if I feel like I got to you know, Carry one argument from one platform to another. Um, I will do it. I'm, I'm sort of biased against doing that on my own, but if I think it's necessary, I'll do it, and um, um, that's just the way it is. Uh, so, one of the other things I wanted to write about, and I actually had you know, uh, intern pull together a whole bunch of stuff for me on it, and I may return to it. I'm, I'm, you know, I had that great episode of the Remnant on on conspiracy theories a while back. And I've written a ton about conspiracy theories in the past. I am kind of fascinated by how you can get in, a, you can get yourself in a bubble where you actually start to believe the stuff in a conspiracy theory in ways that it, you know, just all you had to do was take one step backwards out of the bubble to realize how incredibly deranged it is. And so I find like the pandemic stuff, I haven't watched the documentary or the trailer for the documentary and all that, but I've read a bit about it. Um, I, I pay attention to the crazy stuff on Twitter and elsewhere about Fauci. And I, I find it all so mesmerizingly stupid. Um, as I understand it, and, you know, please forgive me if I'm getting the nuances of these various conspiracy theories wrong. But as I understand it, the argument is, is that Fauci um, or and or Bill Gates or Bill, you know, working together or separately, um, they created the Wuhan virus and so they let it spread so that they could make money off a of vaccine, or in some versions, Bill Gates wants to put a chip in everybody's neck or something like that. And let's take the softest form of it, right? rather, you know, rather than the, the truly deranged stuff. Let's take you know, the least bonkers version of it, which is that Fauci is doing what he's doing in some way to make money, or that Gates is doing what he's doing in some way to make money. Um. This makes no sense. Fauci, I believe, is like 79 years old. He could have made millions of dollars of year, millions of dollars a year. Thirty years ago, by one, once after the AIDS stuff was over, even if without the AIDS stuff, just given the job that he had, he would be snapped up by any big pharmaceutical company in the country and given, and be given a lavish compensation package. He could have sat on board after board after board. He could have consulted. He could have made a fortune. I know people in that industry um, who are far lower profile, who are who are quite successful, like envy-inducing, you know, wealthy. And so the idea is that Fauci declined that life until he was 79 years old, right? He stayed as a government bureaucrat fighting disease, fighting to keep people healthy, um, and then saw finally, was fed up and saw his opportunity and sold out to make money somehow in a scheme that, if caught, he would go to jail, like jail, jail, right? Conceivably even be put to death, um, so you have to ask now, sort of, what's the comparative advantage? Is the amount of money he could make from this so much greater than the amount of money he could have made by simply retiring and becoming a consultant in the private sector? Um, and is the risk premium uh, of conceivably going to jail for the rest of his life worth it um, for those extra billions of dollars or something? It just, it it, it is bizarre to me. And it's the same thing with, with Bill Gates. I mean, like, Bill Gates. I mean, you can look it up. Bill Gates has a lot of money. Um, what is the motivation for the extra, call it, ten billion dollars for Bill Gates to risk going to jail, being you know, being executed, whatever? Having you know, he spent he's spent millions, billions, literally billions of dollars. To bolster his reputation as a philanthropist. and the idea that it's worth he thinks it's worth his time to do all of this stuff on the side um, as part of a scheme to get rich or to get powerful or any of these kinds of things. it is amazing to me that people can believe this stuff. And I'm not even talking about the people who believe the government is really run by lizard people and all that kind of stuff. And, and I agree with the listener out there who's saying at this very moment, why are you even talking about this? These are not serious people. Well, I mean, part of the problem is is that there's there's sort of an Overton window problem in that... Um, hold on, I'll find you this number that I saw. Um, uh... Um, Yes. Yeah, so look, you can say that you know, I shouldn't even be talking about this because I'm giving attention or oxygen to marginal people, fever swamp people, carnies, whatever. Um, but look, there's a YouGov poll that found that 28% of Americans believe that Bill Gates wants to use vaccines to implant microchips in people. And that figure rose to 44% among Republicans. Now, don't know much about the poll entirely possible. Its methodology is bad. So let's just say it's half that for both findings. That's scary. And when I look at Twitter all the time, there is this, you know, there's always, there's this, there's this stuff out there about I will never take a Bill Gates vaccine. And, um, you know, and then out, you know, Anthony Fauci is corrupt from people I know. Um, you know, and there's, you know, there's stuff at, 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 you know, sites like American Greatness, which I do not go to on my own very often because I think it's, for the most part, a great exercise in turd polishing. And if if I had my druthers back when I was at National Review, I would have had a policy that said, sort of like National Review's old policy with the American Mercury, if you write for American Greatness, you can't write for National Review. Um, I uh, You know, that's not canceling people. That's just drawing lines. And I... I Um, And I highly recommend everybody look at David Bonson's uh, piece on Julie Kelly's um, garbage book um, about never-jumpers and all of that. Um, You'll get a better sense of of the kind of thing that I'm talking about. But, you know, someone who who I used to have a lot of respect for, uh, you know, has a big, long piece at American Greatness about how Fauci is part of the deep state and blah, 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 blah. And look, I am open to the idea that Fauci makes mistakes. I am open to the idea that Fauci has been inconsistent. I am open to the idea that Fauci is, you know, vain or whatever. I mean, I I don't really see it. I see the guy kind of struggling to to do right as he sees it in an impossible situation. I'm open to criticisms of Fauci. But I just find the idea that somehow he is the real author of Donald Trump's problems um, when it comes to the pandemic to be outrageous. And just and dangerous and you know, sort of undemocratic and demagogic, and it disgusts me the number of people who buy into all of it. I mean, again, fine if you got policy you know criticisms of Fauci if you want to say you know he should have had his mask on when he went to the baseball game, all, fine. But the the looking for scapegoats is ridiculous, and I think that one of the problems that you get to particularly online is that you can you know if. You can be misled by the people who like your stuff. If you go hammer and tongs at Fauci, my guess is you're going to get a lot of clicks and positive feedback from QAnon people and Fever Swamp people. And unless you're really discerning and have a lot of experience and understanding where, you know, what, what an internet audience is like, you're going to think that you're getting positive feedback from really smart, you know, great people, and that you're going to start catering to them, and I've seen this happen for twenty years on the internet, where people listen to their biggest fans until they become caricatures of themselves, because the people they get the most positive feedback from are the ones who are saying, "This was great. You're so brave. You just didn't go far enough." And the prevalence that comes with the flattening of, of media from uh, you know from Twitter and Facebook and all of the rest is that uh, you are there are constituencies now for bat guano, crazy stuff. And if you're getting clicks and eyeballs, you just start gravitating towards it. And, you know, that's, the, that's, you know, that's the story of, you know, I don't even want to give them you know the credit of naming them, but there are a lot of people who I remember back during the early days of blogging who were quite sane. And they just basically got corrupted and owned by their fan base and by their audiences. And, um, and the, so the conspiracy stuff, it needs to be sort of shot down head on because there are a lot of people who monetize the popularity of that and then expand it even further. I mean, Michelle Malkin, you know, she's out there vowing to never take a Gates vaccine, this great, courage courageous statement as she also then goes on to defend neo-Nazis and whatnot. Um and so, but I also just, I just, I also just think it's sort of fascinating that people can convince themselves of this kind of stuff. And this is my basic problem with, you know, conspiracy theories in general. Conspiracies are really, really hard. They're really, really complicated. Um, you know, the idea that 9-11 was an inside job, you, it's something you can only believe if, you know, barring some sort of mental handicap, you um, if you really don't understand how government works. I mean, the only reason I was sort of hesitant there is that there were some crazy guys who used to be semi-respected on the right who went in for 9-11 truth or stuff and they had worked in the government. And I don't think that gives them credibility. I think they're being disgruntled and whatnot and feeling locked out of the rooms where it happened led them to get a conspiratorial mindset about what was going on one pay grade above them. But for the most part, if you've been in Washington, the idea that like 9/11, which would require—I'm just going to spitball it here—two thousand conspirators, right? You got to place the bombs, you got to transport the bombs, you got to create the—you know—the dummy dossiers and the scheme to get the 9, 9/11 hijackers framed. You have to do all of their backstory stuff. Um, you have to—you know spirit the evidence away from the the rubble, and you just start thinking it through. It requires a bunch of people. Not one of them was a whistleblower. Not one of them, you know, you know, spoke up. Um, they all kept their secrets beforehand and after. Um, and then they pulled it off, which is just really hard to do. Um, and it's also similarly like the, you know, the war, um, the Iraq war. I can't tell you how many arguments I had with leftists back in the early 2000s about how this was just a war for oil and Rumsfeld and Cheney just wanted to get rich. And it's one of these things that, like, it's one of these things that makes a lot of sense when you're really far away from these things and your imagination can run wild. You know, it's sort of like where the myths of mermaids came from. It was a bunch of horny goat sailors out at sea who, out of the corner of their eye, saw the back tails of, like, dolphins or whatever flapping in the water... And they let their minds wander and said, "Okay, well, the top half must have been a really hot chick." Um, you get this sort of similar phenomenon where you watch, you know, American politics from a great distance, or you watch rich people from a great distance, and you assume that all they care about is money, without ever acknowledging the thing about the, the you know, there's an important difference between necessary and sufficient. Dick Cheney went into the federal government worth about 200 million dollars. Don Rumsfeld went into the government, he went into the cabinet with, a, I think about a 100 or maybe 200 million dollars. The idea is that the, the idea that these guys would risk everything to make profits for the oil industry and put send American people's lives, you know, send Americans to their deaths for that reason, it's a cartoon understanding of how things work. And I just find that we're finding more and more that there's, you know, cartoonishness everywhere you look. There's cartoonish public policy proposals, cancel rent. It's just so easy, you know. And there're cartoonish conspiracy theories. Um, And it's 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 kind of maddening trying to well, I shouldn't say trying to. It's kind of maddening watching people get sort of caught in the undertow of this stupidity and making concessions to it. Um, and I guess, all right, so the last thing I, you know, I, I get no credit for the things that I don't comment on. And I think my ability to, uh, refrain from just going nuts with the, the demon semen stuff, um, deserves a little more, you know, uh, respect. I mean, this is the kind of sophomoric, uh, low hanging fruit kind of, uh, you know material that a younger Jonah Goldberg would be running away with and um, i will just simply say that like it, it shows you how much we have defined deviancy down when it comes to Donald Trump's behavior wh- that he can say in a press conference actually two i think press at least whatever at least one press conference that he thought this woman who believes that you get gynecological problems if you dream, if you have sex with demons in your sleep, um, and who thinks that lots of medicine is made with alien DNA, and thinks that people like Fauci are secretly taking hydroxychloroquine um, um, and not telling anybody about it. Uh, he can say that this woman has an important voice and that's why um, he tweeted out that press conference, which was full of other very prestigious doctors. And for the, just for the record, most of those doctors I looked it up are not prestigious. Um, Some, you know, and they're not, and they call themselves frontline doctors for something or other. Um, And they're not on the front lines for the most part either. But some of you might not remember this in, I think it was, I call it 2010, Barack Obama gave a speech where he was making fun of um, opponents of, you know, green technology or, you know, the stimulus or whatever. Um, and uh, saying that, you know, they're like Rutherford B. Hayes, who um, once said that the telephone's a great invention, but no one's ever going to need it. And, it turned out pretty quickly that the quote was made up. It was one of those, you know, famous quotes on the Internet, you know, as as Abraham Lincoln said, don't trust everything you read on the Internet. And um, it was a made-up quote. It wasn't true about Hayes. It was actually really supportive of the technology. And I remember at the time, conservatives, Bushies, you know, Republicans were um, really dunking on Trump, I'm mean, on Trump, on, on Obama and his... Um, Speechwriting team, because someone put it in a speech forum, for the unprofessionalism of it. And there were a lot of these kinds of stories where they clearly used Wikipedia. You know, Ben Rhodes was kind of a hack. Um, and they, uh, they were the first generation of White House speechwriters entirely raised on Google searches and Wikipedia. And they made the mistakes that people raised on that stuff um, often make. And And they were dunked on. They were dunked on by former Bush administration people. They were dunked on by all sorts of conservatives, you know, like, this is so shabby. This shows how, like, unprepared they are. So you have the president of the United States this week, first of all, floating um, something he should at least be censured for by Congress, the idea of maybe moving the elections. But you have him also, you know, floating this nonsense about, you know, about hydrochloroquine, you know, and I'm not saying it's useless. I think it can be used in some cases, but it's just not the cure that Trump wants it to be. He's pushing this stuff out there from doctors he knows nothing about. And he admits later that he knows nothing about. And everyone's just like, ah, that's Trump. That's what Trump does. Um, And they're right. That is what Trump does. But the standards by which we hold presidents accountable for the quality of the information that they put out there have plummeted under this president, and I'm going to be really interested in watching how people criticize the next Democratic president um, when they get when he gets stuff wrong. Although again, they're making fun of of, of Joe Biden's cognitive, you know, impairments now, as if D- Donald Trump doesn't have any. But anyway, that's something that will come up again and again in the future. Um, there was other stuff I was going to talk about, but I'm tired. I need to have my dinner. Ralph needs to go outside. Um and uh uh just so everybody knows, next week is gonna be kind of weird. I'm gonna try and hit all of my quotas for stuff, but I leave Tuesday um to meet my fam my wife and daughter out west. I'm really looking forward to that. The doggers will be taken care of first by Kirsten, our um beloved dog walker and uh, and sort of aunt to the dogs, um, and then by and the cats in the house will be taken care of by uh Nick, my assistant. And, uh, then Nick will take care of the dogs for a little while and then Kirsten will get back the dogs, yada, yada, yada. But anyway, I'm going to be gone for a while. Um, I'm going out west to Wyoming to meet my family. Then we're going to drive to Idaho where I'm going to do a rafting trip. And for part of it, there will be just zero cell service. I'll be completely cut off. So I'll be go dark a little. And, um, and then there are some other adventures, which I'll tell you about later. So, um, but I, you'll definitely hear from me a bit next week. We've got some podcasts in the can. I'm going to record one more on Monday. And um, uh, that's about it. So thanks to everybody for putting up with me. If I sound um, more incoherent than normal, that's only because I feel more incoherent than normal. And um, really appreciate all the support and the indulgence. And I'll talk to you guys next time. Bye.